Welcome to another thought-provoking episode of Uncovering the Civil War, a podcast series that uncovers a deeper understanding of the American Civil War and Reconstruction and how they still affect us today. And now, here is your host, author of The Ones They Left Behind, Antonio El Male. Hello, everyone. And welcome to another episode of Uncovering the Civil War. Today, my guest is James McPherson. James is Professor Emeritus of History at Princeton University, where he taught for 42 years. He has written numerous books on the Civil War, including Battle Cry of Freedom, the Civil War Era, published in 1988, which won a Pulitzer Prize, and War on the Waters, the Union and Confederate Navies. Welcome, James. Thank you. Today, we're going to discuss the roles the Union and Confederate navies played in the Civil War, and also some of the innovations they ushered into modern warfare, as described in James's book, War on the Waters. So I'd like to start our discussion today by asking you to please describe the Anaconda Plan, which was devised early in the war to defeat the rebellion. Uh, This was a proposal, a plan by uh, General-in-Chief Winfield Scott in uh, early uh, in the war in May of 1861. And Scott was a Virginian. Uh, He hoped to bring, but loyal to the Union, and he hoped to bring the seceded states back in with as little um, violent warfare as possible because he hoped for a reconciliation And so he proposed basically to squeeze the Confederacy like the anaconda or python snake of South America by a blockade at sea and by gaining control of the Mississippi River, uh, therefore denying all access to outside um, sources of support and imports of materiel to the Confederacy uh, and hoping that it would die on the vine without thoroughgoing warfare. In the end, uh, that was part of the uh, Union strategy, the blockade, uh, gaining control of Mississippi and of other navigable rivers uh, in the Confederacy. But it certainly was not sufficient to bring about Union victory in the war. And of course, as we know, uh, there were many uh, many campaigns and many uh, uh, battles with large numbers of casualties before the war was over. But the Anaconda Plan, the blockade, uh, gaining uh, naval control of the rivers, uh, was an essential part of ultimate Union victory, even if it didn't do it all by itself. So in other words, what I hear you say is that the Navy was actually two navies. Can you can you explain that? Because they were actually quite distinct with two very different roles and and actually different kinds of ships? Well, there was the Blue Water Navy, the traditional Navy, which uh, in 1861 consisted of um, several different kinds of warships. Going back to the 1840s, the United States Navy had begun to convert from sail to steam. Uh, The first uh, steamship in the Navy was actually the USS Princeton. In the 1850s, there was a 
pretty large scale naval construction program that constructed uh, six steam frigates, uh, the USS Minnesota, the Wabash, uh, the Roanoke, all of them named after rivers. Uh, they were a combination steamship uh, and sailing. They used steam for fast uh, action and maneuverability, but uh, they would switch to sails for long cruises in order to save uh, save fuel. Each of them carried 44 guns, some of them nine-inch guns. So they uh, were the pride of the Navy and uh, as advanced as the ships of any Navy in the world. Uh, there were so, uh, smaller versions of the same kind of steam-sail combination called sloops of war, uh, and they also uh, played an important role in patrolling the uh, seven seas, uh, trying to break up the African slave trade, things like that. So they were the backbone of the uh, Blue Water Navy that carried out the blockade during the Civil War, but there was also the so-called Brown Water Navy, uh, which didn't exist before 1861, but was constructed uh, on a kind of crash program beginning in 1861, uh, river gunboats. Some of them converted from regular peacetime steamboats. Uh, they were uh, covered with heavier armor and fitted with guns. And some of them constructed anew the so-called uh, pooks, turtles, were lightly armored, uh, ironclads, uh, that were built by this naval constructor, a guy named Pook. That's why they were called Pook's Turtles, and they kind of looked like turtles. Uh, and they began. The, they became the um, uh, initial backbone of the, uh, of the River Navy. Uh, they were built in St. Louis uh, and in uh, other parts of the Middle West, and uh, began their war on the Tennessee and Cumberland and Mississippi rivers, penetrating into the South, uh, and played a crucial role in uh, early uh, victories in that theater of the war, which were essential to uh, ultimate Union victory. And they also had a much shallower draft. In other words, they, they were not designed for deep water so that they could go into these river channels and, and yeah, back waters. They drew only six um, feet of water. Abraham Lincoln um, said that they could go wherever the ground was a little damp, as usual. Uh, <laughs> <metaphor>. <laughs> here's, a, here's another question for you. What, can you describe, uh, explain, really, the complications of international law as it pertained to the terms blockade and closing of ports. I think it's a very important distinction that our listeners probably have no real awareness of. Well, a nation can, uh, under international law, close its ports to foreign commerce. And in the early part of the Civil War, Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, and other um, political leaders uh, said that what the United States should do would be to close the Confederate ports like Charleston, Wilmington, North Carolina, Mobile, Alabama, New Orleans, uh, to foreign commerce as a way of preventing the Confederacy from importing um, uh, war material and exporting cotton to pay for it. But the British objected pretty strongly to that. 
uh, on technical grounds um, of various kinds. And, of course, the uh, Confederate ports uh, claim to be forts of an independent country. Uh, and indeed, uh, you know, for all practical terms, once uh, the southern states had seceded and established the Confederate government, they were ports of a foreign country. So in the end, uh, Secretary of State Seward persuaded Lincoln, instead of declaring those ports closed, which would have created all kinds of complications, especially with the British, but with other foreign nations who claimed the right to trade with the Confederacy, decided instead to proclaim a blockade, which was a traditional weapon of war, used especially, of course, by the British because they had the foremost navy in the world at the time, to uh, prevent the kind of importation and exportation of war material and cotton. And so that became, Lincoln actually declared a blockade as early as April 19th, 1861, when the war was only a few days old. And that became the principal goal, the principal strategic action of the United States Navy, uh, the Blue Water Navy, during the course of the war, uh, was to uh, proclaim, was to carry out a blockade. And the blockade was recognized under international law. There had been an international conference in Paris back in 1856 after the uh, Crimean War to codify some of the international law issues that had grown out of that war, a war in which the British and French and, and the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, had fought against the Russians. Uh, and once that war was over, a lot of the questions that had come up um, in the course of the war were thrashed out at this international conference in Paris, which came out with the Declaration of Paris. And among many other things, uh, it defined a blockade uh, and forbid, forbade what were called paper blockades. That is, forbade countries just to proclaim a blockade and then demand that foreign countries recognize it, even if it, even if they had relatively few ships to enforce it. Uh, the Declaration of Paris said, in order to be legal under international law, uh, blockades must be effective. The big question during the Civil War was how to define effective. Did that mean that uh, no ships at all could make their way through the blockade? If so, the blockade carried out by the Union Navy would have been illegal under international law because a number of ships managed to slip through the blockade, especially in the early months uh, of the war when there weren't enough naval ships on on uh, duty to, to to enforce any kind of a blockade. But the British um, declared that in, in February of 1862 that they consider a blockade legal if it was carried out by enough, ship, uh, enough ships to uh, create a, a danger uh, of uh, capture in entering or leaving a port. You didn't have to have a, a, a hermetically sealed blockade. You just had to have uh, an active and effective enough blockade to create an evident danger for ships trying to get through it. And by that time, the Union blockade certainly qualified under 
that definition, and it be, the Union blockade became tighter and tighter in the course of the war, uh, and uh, they managed to capture many uh, ships trying to break through the blockade and prevent the Confederacy from importing all of the war material that it wanted to and from exporting uh, the cotton to pay for it. So in the end, even though uh, a majority of blockade runners did get through the blockade, enough of them were captured and the blockade was effective enough so that it was both legal under at least the British interpretation uh, and the Ameri the Union interpretation of international law, if not the Confederate uh, interpretation. The Confederates claimed that the number of ships that got through it made it a paper blockade, but uh, by 1862, 1863, uh, nobody else except the Confederacy itself was accepting that claim. Mm -hmm. And uh, during the course of the war, the blockade became increasingly effective as more and more naval ships came on, on, um, uh, came on stream to, uh, to enforce it. And uh, I'm convinced that it played a major role in ultimate Union victory and denying the Confederacy the resources it needed to carry on the war and causing an enormous inflation uh, in the Confederate economy, which became almost became literally ruinous to the Confederate mm -hmm. economy and eventually uh, to its war effort. Uh, yeah, later in the show, I'm going to ask you if you can to uh, maybe list some st actual statistics that you compiled about you know, before the war, how many bales of cotton were imported into the South versus afterwards, and, and you know, some of the more amazing uh, uh, ramifications. But I want to come back to my uh, original question and ask and suggest to you that this whole terminology is another example of Lincoln, you know, doing this incredible tap dance to semantically support not recognizing the Confederacy as a legitimate government. Uh, it's all about making it a, a point of a rebellion, illegitimate, uh, not, you know, not really qualifying under any kinds of uh, international law edicts because he didn't want, uh, for political reasons and international reasons, for anyone to get the idea that, that it was actually a war between two legitimate powers. Am I right about that? Yes. Uh, the, the Civil War um, involved some legal fictions. Uh, Lincoln and the United States government denied the right to secede, and uh, they did not recognize the Confederate, uh, Confederacy, therefore, as a nation. Uh, Confederates were uh, rebels. They were rebelling against the lawful authority of the United States government. But at the same time, of course, the Confederacy did establish their own government with a president and a Congress and a uh, Supreme Court and uh, all of the machinery of a government um, and uh, created an army and a navy of its own. So clearly, it had all of the attributes of a nation. And then uh, Lincoln's uh, very action in proclaiming a blockade, which is a uh, weapon of war between nations, uh, conferred a, a, a quasi-legitimacy, at least, on the Confederacy. 
And then there uh, came the problem of the treatment of prisoners of war. Um, when the U.S. Union Army captured Confederate soldiers in battle or Confederate uh, privateer crews in uh, when the Confederacy uh, sent out privateers to prey on Union merchant ships, uh, were they to be treated as uh, pirates and as uh, rebels, uh, tried and maybe executed for treason? Uh, if they, Lincoln had tried to do that, of course, the Confederacy would have retaliated with their captured uh, POWs. And so uh, Lincoln had to recognize captured Confederate soldiers and ultimately captured privateer crews uh, as uh, prisoners of war rather than as uh, criminals deserving punishment uh, for treason. So in those two respects, proclaiming a blockade and the treatment of prisoners of war, uh, it became uh, a war in in fact, if not in legal definition, uh, between nations. And so Lincoln had to tread this thin line between the uh, legal fiction that the Confederacy didn't exist uh, and the practical uh, truth that it did indeed exist. And that continued to be a kind of... Um, a dual situation that pers uh, that, that uh, persisted through the entire war. <laughs> Did the U.S. Navy suffer a similar percentage of defections to the Confederacy as the uh, as the U.S. Army did? No, uh, a, a higher yeah. percentage of uh, navy uh, naval officers remained loyal to the Union than uh, Army officers. Uh, some did defect uh, to the Confederacy. Uh, Franklin Buchanan, who was from Maryland and became the uh, first admiral in the Confederate Navy, um, defected to the Confederacy. He was from Maryland. Uh, Raphael Sims, who became the uh, great um, um, sea dog that commanded the CSS Alabama, uh, and a number of others did defect to the Confederacy, but a higher percentage of um, Union naval uh, officers remain loyal to the Union from the South uh, than the North. The, some of the outstanding um, uh, uh, Union naval officers uh, were from states that uh, had seceded. Uh, David Farragut was born in Tennessee and had lived in Virginia, uh, but he became the outstanding uh, a Union uh, naval commander in the course of the war. And there were some others as well. Percival Drayton from South Carolina became one of the foremost uh, fighting captains in the Union Navy, and his brother, William Drayton, uh, became a Confederate general. Uh, so uh, there were quite a few prominent Southerners who remained loyal to the Union. Uh, Do you have any idea why? I mean, why that was? I mean, certainly, you know, the war cleaved all sorts of loyalties out of uh, everything. So why do you think it was that the Navy didn't suffer that that level of defection that the Army did? Well, let me take the Draytons as an example to explain why I think this is true. Uh, William Drayton uh, from South Carolina, who became a Confederate general, uh, owned a plantation in South Carolina and spent his 
uh, pre-war years on the plantation. Uh, and so he was rooted in the soil, uh, quite literally, I guess, uh, of, of South Carolina. And when South Carolina went out of the Union, so did he. But Percival Drayton had spent his entire career in the Navy, sailing uh, uh, on uh, ships uh, that went all over the world. Uh, he was not rooted in the soil of South Carolina, and so his loyalty remained to not only his service, uh, the United States Navy, but uh, the United States government, which um, which had created and sustained that Navy. And that was true, I think, of uh, many other uh, Southerners who were like Farragut, uh, who remained loyal to the Union. They had spent almost in their entire uh, lives uh, at sea rather than on the land. And as a consequence, uh, they had a much more nationalistic uh, perspective. That's uh, that's really interesting. I, uh, I I never really bothered to think about that, but it makes total sense that they just didn't even have the emotional roots that somebody who had a plantation might have had. Um, exactly. Was the Navy bedeviled by the same disastrous system of political admirals and flag officers as the Army was with political generals? Uh, certainly, at least in the earlier years of the war? No, it was not. Uh, the United States Navy, the Union Navy in the Civil War was much more professional. Uh, and I think, and, and did not have uh, political captains or political admirals the way uh, Benjamin Butler and um, uh, Frank Blair and all kinds of other Union uh, Army officers became generals uh, uh, through their political influence rather than their professional competency. And I think the reason for that is that um, being a naval officer required uh, technical capacity, professional capacity, uh, which uh, could not you, you, a, a congressman or a senator uh, or a, a prominent politician just can't go on board a ship uh, and claim to know how to uh, to command that ship. Uh, commanding the ship required the technical competency, uh, a great deal of experience at sea, uh, and there's no way that uh, somebody could claim the right to uh, become a captain in the Navy um, the way that so many politicians sought uh, appointments as uh, officers in the army. Uh, as it turned out, of course, uh, the, many of the political generals didn't have uh, the kind of technical competency to command troops on land, uh, but they didn't even uh, pretend that they could have the kind of professional capacity to uh, to command a ship. Well, also, weren't they basically recruiting magnets? I mean, during the run-up to the war, certainly during the beginning stages of the war, I mean, Lincoln was forced to constantly pick, uh, from my understanding, pick generals who could actually recruit soldiers. That's quite true. It, yeah. Yep. You describe how there was an understanding that no officer in the Army could outrank his counterpart in the Navy during combined operations. Did this understanding endure through the war? Yes. Uh, there were sometimes uh, arguments about that. Uh, did, uh, was a captain 
in the Navy equal to a brigadier general in the Army, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, that, of course, was uh, true as late as World War II for uh, the United States Navy and the United States Army, um, when um, the likes of General Douglas MacArthur uh, argued with uh, Admiral Chester Nimitz uh, about who had uh, greater control of, uh, of the operations in the South Pacific, as just one example. And the same thing was true in the Civil War. So they did work out equivalent um, uh, equivalents of ranks, um, but there were often arguments about whether um, a naval officer had to obey a, a, a brigadier general or vice versa, a, a Navy captain. And um, uh, the, the, the most successful combined operations occurred when both uh, the, the senior officers in the Army and in the Navy uh, sort of waived uh, this idea and agreed to, comp uh, to, um, uh, to cooperate. Uh, mm -hmm. Grant and David Dixon Porter, for example, in the Vicksburg right. campaign. Um, they worked together, even though uh, there was. It's not clear that either of them could give orders to the other, but they would suggest uh, operational uh, activities, uh, uh, and and they cooperated. And uh, so, when when that happened, uh, things went pretty smoothly. Well, it sounds pretty cumbersome, you know, to have to run off to get somebody's approval uh, from another service to to execute some, uh, you know, a, a for example, a naval operation to get the, the corresponding uh, uh, army general to say, OK, I, I go along. Do, do you do you have any uh, notion of how that might have actually caused more problems than it uh, solved in the course of. Uh, combined operations, or did it essentially go fairly smoothly? Um, I'd have to I'd have to think about that for a, a moment. Uh, for example, in the uh, New Orleans capture of New Orleans, the Navy basically it was the Navy that captured New Orleans at the end of April 1862, uh, and then the Army uh, moved in as an occupation force. Benjamin Butler was commanding the Army troops, and uh, uh, David Glasgow Farragut commanded the naval troops. Uh, and the question was, uh, which of them could um, uh, give orders uh, and have the other obey it? And sometimes um, they did clash in that case, and I think that was true in other cases as well. But for the most part, that did not come up as a as a um, crippling uh, problem in uh, combined operations. Mm -hmm. Usually the, um, the the two senior officers, uh, DuPont, for example, and Thomas W. Sherman in the Port Royal operation in November 1861. Sherman was a brigadier general and DuPont was a, was a captain, a senior captain. They cooperated all right, even though it was not clear whether either of them could give orders to the other. And for the most part, that did work out in, in uh, most operations that, that I'm familiar with. Well, that's, a, that's a, certainly a blessing. <laughs> uh, you present a surprising fact, and one of many, that asserts that the United States Navy did not 
have the first ironclad warships, contradicting the popular belief that it did. Can, could you explain that further? It's quite surprising to me. Well, yes and no. It uh, depends on how you define um, ironclads. Uh, for one thing, the Union River Navy creating the city class of ships that I mentioned earlier on the Mississippi, Tennessee, and Cumberland rivers, uh, the Carondelet, the Pittsburgh, the St. Louis, uh, the, and so on, uh, they actually did have some iron armor, and they were built in uh, the late, 60, late 1861 and early 1862 uh, before the Confederacy built the CSS Virginia uh, at, um, in Norfolk. Um, but even before the Civil War, both uh, Britain and France had built an experimental ironclad before uh, the United States Navy even thought about doing that. Then during the Civil War, the first true ironclad, that is the entire ship sheathed in, in substantial iron armor, uh, was the Confederacy. They began converting the uh, steam frigate, uh, the USS Merrimack, which they'd captured when, the, when Norfolk fell to the Confederacy at the beginning of the war. It burned to the waterline, but they managed to to um, save the, the hull of it, and they began converting it into an ironclad. Uh, and it was the first true ironclad, if we don't consider those Western city-class uh, gunboats uh, true ironclads, and that's a matter of definition, really. Um, and it, the, the Confederates got uh, there first. Uh, with an operational ironclad, but of course the Union came in a very close second with the Monitor, which arrived in the nick of time to confront the CSS Virginia on the second day of the Virginia's operations in Hampton Roads and to fight it to uh, to a draw. It's probably what I, what I think I might have been confusing is that it might have been the first actual battle between true ironclads. Maybe that's the, the, the distinction that I got confused about. Um, um, would you say that's true, that, that the, the Merrimack Monitor clash was the first battle between ironclads ever seen before? Definitely it was. Uh, yeah. March okay. 9th, 1862, there had never before been uh, a battle between two ironclads, even though uh, ironclads had existed before then. We're, you know, we, we talked, uh, or I should say, the Union Army um, abandoned the practice of exchanging prisoners. I think it was Grant who decided, this is stupid. Why are we giving back, you know, furloughing uh, Confederate soldiers? Let's just incarcerate them and, and keep our numerical advantage. Did, did, why did the U.S. Navy return English blockade runners when they knew they would likely <laughs> come right back. I mean, it was so, you point out in your book how, how incredibly profitable one or two of these blockade runs were. I mean, they could make their money back and, and then some, but the Navy, for whatever reason, it seems from, from what you wrote, at least the way I understood it, that the Navy would return these, block, these English blockade runners. Can you, can you, do you have a, an explanation for that? Yes, uh, the crews of blockade runners that were from foreign nations, principally Britain, um, 
were not United States nationals. They were not Confederate um, uh, sailors. Uh, they were civilians, volunteers, uh, operating um, non non naval ships. The blockade runners uh, were a private enterprise. Um, uh, Gideon Wells, the Union Secretary of the Navy, wanted to hold them as uh, prisoners, but that created or uh, would have created and did create all kinds of problems with the uh, the British. Uh, because they were British subjects. Um, mm. And so the United States uh, government, not wanting to get into uh, a controversy that um, might turn serious with the British, uh, decided that they could not be held as prisoners of war. They were temporarily incarcerated, but eventually they let them go. And as you suggested, uh, some of them went right back and um, became um, crews on blockade runners again. So they uh, they were playing fast and loose with all these definitions. I mean, everybody knew that they were that they were making money on uh, you know supplying the Confederate war effort, but they looked the other way, I guess, to avoid an international scandal. And you know, as Lincoln or somebody said, we can only afford one war at a time, or something like that. So that's uh, correct. Yeah. What was the rationale behind the requirement that the U.S. and, and again, I may have misunderstood this, but uh, you you write about the rationale behind the requirement that the U.S. give 60 days notice before reestablishing the blockade if it was broken. Am I am I wrong about the way I read that? Can you explain that a little further? Yes, under international law, uh, when a nation uh, proclaims a blockade, as Lincoln did uh, in April uh, 1861, they have to give, uh, as you suggested, 60-day notice uh, to the foreign governments. One of the reasons for that is that it, when the blockade was proclaimed, there were a lot of merchant ships uh, of foreign nations in Confederate ports, let's say Charleston, they had arrived in Charleston and were carrying out their trading activities in time of peace. Uh, and now it was wartime, and under the Declaration of Paris, uh, they, there had to be uh, adequate notice uh, given to these ships that a blockade had been proclaimed so that, for example, uh, the ships that were in Charleston could have an opportunity to um, sail back to England without being apprehended by the Union Navy because uh, the blockade hadn't existed when they had first sailed uh, into Charleston. Uh, this came up again in uh, 1862, once the blockade was in effect, of course. It had been in effect for a year when uh, the, the Confederates who had built a couple of ironclads uh, in Charleston sent these ironclads out to attack the Union blockade ships uh, and scattered them before the blockade could be um, reimposed. They actually damaged uh, a couple of the Union blockade ships by ramming them. The Confederates claimed that by sending out these two ironclads and uh, forcing the blockade ships, all of which were wooden ships uh, at that time in, in Charleston, that the blockade had been lifted, that they had managed to lift the blockade. 
The Union Navy didn't accept this because uh, within several hours of this attack, they had managed to uh, reassemble the fleet and and, and uh, reestablish the blockade. Uh, but the Confederates were trying to take advantage of this international law requirement that there must be 60-day notice uh, of the proclamation of a blockade by saying that they had they had broken the blockade and so it needed to be reestablished under that provision of international law. But the um, Union Navy said, forget it, uh, we don't accept that. And, and um, so they they went right on and reassembled the blockade ships and, and continued to carry out the blockade. Yeah, because I had a follow-up question was why wouldn't why couldn't the Confederacy just keep claiming the blockade broken and and you know keep pushing that sixty-day rule you know in the face of the Union Navy and essentially get away with just you know continuing to resupply? Um, well, they would have loved to do that, but uh, they uh, they couldn't get anybody to accept the the fiction <laughs> that they had broken the blockade. Ah, okay. There's that. <laughs> um, what was the doctrine of continuous voyage, and what was its particular significance? I think it might it may be a, an esoteric point, but I think it bears some uh, further explanation. Well, uh, the uh, conf- the ships that were trying to trade with the Confederacy uh, through the blockade, the the way the blockade worked is that. Or the way that the the trading nations, the British primarily, but France too, and and other nations, uh, um, tried to trade with the Confederacy, is that they would send out ordinary merchant ships from, uh, let's say, Liverpool to the Bahamas, uh, or maybe to uh, Havana or to Bermuda, and then they would transfer their cargo to blockade runners that would go from the Bahamas to Charleston or from Bermuda to Wilmington, North Carolina. And so the the idea uh, of of the continuous voyage is that those ships going from Liverpool to Bermuda, let's say, were, uh, were actually trying to break the blockade, even though they weren't trying to get from Bermuda into Wilmington. Nevertheless, their cargo was intended for Wilmington. So the Union Navy claimed the right to capture those ships even before they got to Bermuda. The British objected to this, but they didn't object too strongly because the British wanted that were willing to accept the principle of the doctrine of continuous voyage because in in some possible future war the British would be trying would be imposing a blockade. And if they could, so, so they accepted the precedent uh, of the doctors of uh, continuous voyage, even though it, it was a kind of a fiction. The, the cargo was intended for the Confederacy, even if the ship wasn't. Uh, that particular chicken came home to roost in uh, World War One, when before the United States got into the war, the United States was a neutral nation. Uh, and uh, the British had imposed a blockade on Germany, the United States would send ships to the Netherlands, which was also a neutral nation. And, of course, that cargo was intended for Germany. And the British would would, uh, stop the American ship trading with the Netherlands 
on the basis of the doctrine of continuous voyage or continuous transportation because the cargo was intended for Germany, and they cited the precedent uh, of the Union use of that doctrine of continuous voyage in the Civil War. Slight aside, does that, did that apply to the Lusitania as well? The Germans, of course, had imposed their submarine blockade on the British. Uh, well, and, cla- it, it, and claimed also that there was munitions on board specifically, you know, destined for the British Army. Yes, and that's true. There were munitions on board the Lusitania. That wasn't so much a continuous voyage uh, because the Lusitania wasn't going to transship, uh, transfer their cargo to another ship. It was just that the Germans claimed that it was not, that it was carrying contraband. And therefore, and the Germans had uh, declared a um, a zone around the British Isles where any ship carrying uh, war material uh, defined as contraband would be liable to sunk, be sunk without without uh, notice. Uh, so that's what happened to the Lusitania. You know, I, I'm I'm thinking about how the British were sort of playing pretty fast and loose and kind of dancing around between this. These, these international terms and kind of looking the other way. Do you think there's any merit to the suggestion that they were also eyeing rather nervously the fact that the U.S. Navy was fast becoming, you know, the most powerful Navy in the world and could possibly be giving down the road, be giving the uh, British, the Royal Navy a, a serious run for its money? Or is that stretching it? I know it's what if history, but it's a kind of an interesting it just occurred to me that they may that may have been part of their calculations. I think it was. Uh, the British are always concerned about precedent. If a precedent gets us established, it's it's favorable to their side, and uh, if it's going to be unfavorable, they're uh, they're very cautious about establishing that precedent. And I think they did fear the possibility that if they establish a precedent hostile to the Union Navy during the Civil War, it could come back to haunt them in some potential or possible future war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, they, I think they were concerned about that possibility. Right. Of course, the, 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 the problem with the British or the, the, the issue with the British is that while it, they were um, interpreting international law in some ways uh, favorable to the Union Navy, that recognizing the blockade, for example, uh, they were also violating their own neutrality law by allowing uh, Confederate ships to be built in ship in uh, British shipyards. The famous uh, Alabama and Florida, which uh, roamed the seas during the war, sinking American merchant ships, were built in, in British shipyards. And, uh, and and the British were actually held liable for that after the war. An international tribunal of arbitration awarded the United States, uh, or the owners, not the government, but the owners of these ships that had been sunk by these Confederate commerce raiders, uh, $15 million after the end of the war for all of the cargoes and ships that were destroyed by these commerce raiders that had been built in British shipyards. So while some of what the British were doing was favorable to the Union Navy. Uh, other things, allowing uh, violation of their looking the other way in some respects, 
so that these ships, especially the Alabama and the Florida, were the two most notorious, but there were others as well, to be built by private British shipyards uh, against British law, uh, which the British were very lax in enforcing it in the first part of the war. They eventually tightened up. Uh, again, I think because they were they didn't want war with the United States. Well, and also the almighty dollar, or in this case, the almighty pound, might have played a bit of a, a role in that as well. Well, that's quite true. <laughs> well, I think this might be a good place to end this first part of our two-part discussion with Pulitzer Prize-winning author James McPherson. So be sure to listen to part two as we continue our fascinating discussion about the roles the Union and Confederate navies played in the Civil War, and much more. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners for taking the time and having the curiosity to listen to another episode of Uncovering the Civil War. Please come back again. Until then, be safe and do good. This has been Uncovering the Civil War with your host, Antonio Elmale. For more information about our podcast, please visit uncoveringthecivilwar.com. This podcast is produced by Antonio Elmale, Chandra Years, and Joe Marsh. Music by Andrew Elmale. This podcast is the sole property of Antonio Elmale. Copyright 2018. No portion of this podcast may be reproduced, transmitted, sold, edited, broadcast, or reposted on the Internet without express written permission of the owner.